Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and you're about to hear a voice that you just heard. I have Matthew Bellis on to talk with me about Romans 13, every Libertarian Christian's favorite topic. Matt, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Doug. No, I thought I'd give you a little bit more of a an embellished voice so that people will at least be able to put a face to the name or to a voice to the name, and there you go. Yeah. All right, good. I've screwed and, uh, it up already. Oh, no, it's all good. Uh, and I'll use this moment to pitch the fact that Matthew joins Norman and Carrie and sometimes other people and me every other week on our YouTube channel. So if you visit our YouTube page, you will get to see Matthew and his shenanigans, as well as hear his nice, deep, welcoming, calming, uh, and sometimes outraged voice. <laughs> <laughs> and hilarity ensued. Yes. Ah, uh, yes. And, uh, you know, yeah, sponsored by Loki, the god of mischief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, you and I live fairly close to each other, and we certainly, of course, live in the same state. I'm waving to you right now, so. Yes. <laughs> Great. The governor of Pennsylvania made a mess of things in Pennsylvania in a number of ways yes. and also made a mess of not only the way things were handled, but just the way he didn't cooperate with the rest of the Pennsylvania legislature. And so therefore there was a reopen PA movement. Yes. And you were, you were part of that. And there was a culmination in a fairly important vote in May of 2021 Mm -hmm. Can you describe basically what the important thing for our purposes of this conversation, because there was other things people voted on that day. What was that vote all about? Well, it was basically to put restrictions on the governor of Pennsylvania as to what sort of powers he would have when it comes to emergency disasters and emergency disaster declarations. A lot of governors around the country use emergency disaster declarations to bypass a little bit of the bureaucracy, a little bit of the regulation in government so that resources, money, sometimes assets and things can get to a specific area for disaster relief, floods, fires, and the like, so that a governor can act with, I don't know if you want to say impunity, but <laughs> has a little bit more leverage efficiency in those. Efficiency is how they would put Sure. It. Yeah, there, there you go. Can act in a way that would give them an amount of leverage and uh, authority to make sure people don't die or make sure people are not left in a lurch, you know? So it's there to try and help people. But unfortunately during the COVID-19 era, we had seen where the governor of Pennsylvania really kind of abused those powers. He basically said that because COVID-19 is such a terrible infectious disease that anywhere on Pennsylvanian soil where two Pennsylvanians might meet, that can be considered a disaster declaration or an emergency declaration. Hmm. And that to us sounded a little absurd. 
but that allowed him to shut down businesses, institute waiver schemes and programs, put people in certain hospitals, COVID-19 patients in certain hospitals where people were actually vulnerable from getting COVID-19. And we actually were one of the states that had the highest percentage of deaths from geriatric patients from COVID-19 in the country. Mm -hmm. So us in New York and I believe Michigan and California as well. Yeah, there's no commonality in in governor behavior. Yeah, there's no common line there. No common denominator. No, not at all. Yeah. Anyway, so the governor act on his own for this emergency declaration, and here was the pernicious part about it. He kept re-upping or uh, reinstituting the emergency disaster declaration so that these powers that he had garnered for himself, he kept every 90 days. He would just go to his desk, have a conversation with himself and say, oh, hey, Tom Wolf, would you like to have more powers this <laughs> next 90 days? And Tom Wolf would say, yes, Tom Wolf, I would love to have more powers. Should we sign this, Tom Wolf? Yes, Tom Wolf. And so they would do that. They, they, yeah. <laughs> you know, what's, what's terrible about that is that I have actually, you know, read statements of his saying, you know, we've talked with, you know, I've talked with the other legislature, you know, with the Pennsylvania legislature, the house and the Senate, and you would have other people saying, no, he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's like he yeah. actually went out of his way to say he didn't just have a conversation with himself, right. even though I'm sure he talked to some people, but it wasn't as if there was consensus that he should keep going and so forth. So Pennsylvania had enough. Yeah. And by sometime in late 2020, there was going to be a vote in May 2021 right. regarding the Pennsylvania Constitution itself. Right. And we were the first state in the union to lay restrictions upon the governor as to the size, the scope, the length, duration of those emergency declarations. And so the Pennsylvania Constitution now has in its place some checks and balances on these emergency disaster declarations, giving the legislature, the uh, co-equal branch of the government, the right to end yeah. those disaster emergency declarations and uh, would have to be in authority or be the one to have them continue if the uh, governor was actually yeah. wanting to do that or feeling the need to do that. So it sounds like adding a bureaucratic process upon a bureaucratic process. And I know that libertarians and myself really eschew the whole need for those kinds of processes in our places. But I saw this and said, you know, in a matter of understanding, does this keep one man from garnering too much power unto himself? And the answer was yes. Well, Democrat or Republican, whoever it may be, uh, well, it keeps the power in check. Well, and what it does is, is the people had an opportunity to keep the power in check or, or to decide on the Constitution of Pennsylvania to do so. And so what's, right. what's interesting about that to me is that it wasn't as if it's not a balance of power as in the Republicans were the ones checking the power of a Democratic Correct. governor or maybe someday vice versa. It was the people of Pennsylvania saying, nope, this is what our Constitution needs to now say. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if the I mean, obviously, the circumstances were because it was a particular type of governor with particular behaviors and happened to be Democrat. But one of these days, Matthew, you and I will get to say to our Democratic friends, aren't you glad that that's in the Constitution now? Because yeah. this other governor <laughs> that you don't like is now not able to do what he might want to do. And right. so one of these days, we will get to say, this is why that exists. Because, yeah. you know, as I've been saying, if you ask somebody three years ago, should any governor just be able to keep extending such, you know, emergency power, people be like, 
of course not. That that would be so, kind of ridiculous. Silly. Why would they do that? That would such be a silly. Thing. And so yeah. now it's obviously it's become polarized. So sure. what does <laughs> so everyone's probably thinking, what the heck does this have to do with Romans 13? Well, <laughs> it, it obviously has to do with, you know, who's in charge and the state and so forth. But right. more more to the context of the Pennsylvania situation, Matthew, you were part of the reopen PA movement. You yes. were coordinating a lot of people whose voices to be heard on the Facebook group and some other and, and actual public speaking. Mm-hmm. And there was a celebration recently. By the time people listen to this, it'll be maybe a month later. Well past. Yeah, but that celebration was, well, tell people about it. It was a particular Saturday mm-hmm. at the Capitol in Pennsylvania, which is in Harrisburg. Mm-hmm. And what was this celebration all about? Well, it was basically just to say that we as Pennsylvanians, we came together in reopen PA to do a job, to end the disaster declarations, to provide some more transparency in government, and to allow people to live their lives again. And with the passage of those amendments, we did it. Mm -hmm. And I feel it's important that whenever you do something, you accomplish something, you need to celebrate it or recognize it. And you need to let people know that this is something that we need to do and we need to end well. The Bible even talks about ending well. You know, it's the end is more important than the beginning of a thing. Mm-hmm. So that we are actually coming together to celebrate and say, we did this and now it's time to move on with our lives. And I felt it was important at that actual rally or celebration to give people a little bit more of the moral underpinnings of rebellion. because. Throughout this whole process, and I may be segueing before you want me to, but I'm going to do it anyway because, hey, I'm Matt Bellis and I do what I want. Um, <laughs> but there are were a lot of people through the whole Reopen PA movement who kind of said, hey, as Christians, aren't we supposed to submit to the governing authorities? Why are we rebelling? Aren't you doing something wrong? Aren't you in sin by speaking out against a governor? Isn't he just trying his best? And I felt it necessary to give the people there, uh, I actually have the recording that I'm going to put up on YouTube later, to give people the moral reasoning why it is necessary to be a counteractive voice against tyrannical movements. So we can possibly have in our show notes page the link to a recording of your actual speech, right? Once I get it up on YouTube. So uh, by the time this comes out, I'm sure, yes. I I would hope so. (laughs) You (laughs) have enough time now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So in addition to that, our conversation is going to be possibly maybe an expansion of some of those thoughts. Is that kind of where we're going to go with this? Yeah. I I thought it would be good to at least kind of expand on those, those ideas and those thoughts and let people of Western Americanized Christianity, I know this goes out worldwide, but at least the Western understanding of God, government, rebellion, submission, where that all comes together and the right ways to go about it, because there definitely are some wrong ways to go about it. Yeah. So what do you think the standard view of Western Christians is about government? Well, there is a... There's not one view, there's many there, views, of course. Yeah, there, there's many views. And Otherwise, seems, we wouldn't be arguing. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It seems to be a little bit 
at war with itself, basically. <laughs> it's, an, it's an ideology or a thought process, usually, that doesn't have the underpinnings of a sound philosophical argument behind it. Because a lot of times people do say, and a lot of folks who are Christians will tell you that, yes, Romans 13 is the way in which we should treat our government. And if it says we are to submit to the governing authorities or we are to be subject to the governing authorities, then that's what it means. Whatever the governing authorities do, we need to submit and subject ourselves to it, basically offering ourselves up to the cannons for fodder. But in the same breath, a lot of the same types of folks will say, yeah, it was really good back in 1776 where our American forefathers rebelled against the tyranny of Great Britain and established a more perfect union and came together as free people to govern themselves independently. So on one side, they're saying we should be subject to the governing authorities and that is almost in total. And on the other side, hey, isn't it great that we have our own country? To which I've even had more honest people actually say, you know, if I'm reading Romans 13 correctly, doesn't that mean that then the American founding is in question? Should our founding fathers not have rebelled against the king of England? Because, hey, if he's the king, then we need to submit to those governing authorities. So there are a lot of differing ideas, but they never seem to coalesce into a full biblical moral understanding of what submission to government actually means, what it practically looks like, and when is the right time, if any, to rebel against certain tyrannies. So let's just kind of understand where people are getting these things from, because God is not a God of confusion. And we want to understand what the Bible tells us about our proper role and interaction with the government. So let's actually just go for a second to Romans 13 and the passage by which everybody seems to get tripped up on. So Romans 13, starting in verse 1, let every person, and this is the English Standard Version, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Now, just remember that phrase, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, people read that and they take it at the bold face value and say, okay, that then 
in their mind, gives government almost a blank check and that whatever the government does is for my good and is ultimately something that I should submit to. They often follow that up, and you've had this conversation as well with other people, and I'm sure other libertarians have as well. But going to Mark 12, where Jesus is having a discussion with the uh, the Pharisees on taxes. Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees in Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And they said to him, Whose likeness? An inscription is this. And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, if you're listening to that, you kind of see parody at the end of that Romans 13 part and that end of what Jesus is talking about in paying things to Caesar. And so, Basically, people take a lot of those two passages to give government that blank check to do whatever they want. Mm. But we have to stop ourselves from just kind of saying that because we know practically from just the 20th century alone that governments instituted can be really bad and should be resisted and not just given a blank check. So what is Romans 13 actually saying there? And how should we actually understand things like Mark 12 that we have this tendency to just give government that power? What comes to mind is one of the things that Norman, our friend Norman Horn, has said is that theology of the state doesn't begin and end with Romans 13. Right. And of course, we can always, you know, say, oh, but what about you know Mark 12 or what about first or second Peter? There's a verse there, and a handful of other verses and so forth. But it seems to me that when we take the whole council of scripture, that we don't necessarily arrive at the same conclusions as if we read those passages all by themselves. So my guess is what you're going to do is you're going to start us earlier on in the scriptures. <laughs> You've got it, Doug, because it is important whenever you're talking about government that you understand more or less the character of God and how he views such an institution like government. Because frankly, I mean, let's be crystal clear here. The Bible is not an absolutist prescription for how we are to run every single facet and detail of our life. Now, there is precepts. There are ways to understand things. You know, how we approach life and interactions with each other. Absolutely, those things are there. But how we absolutely institute and prescribe a full governmental system, it's not necessarily going to come directly jumping out of the pages of the Bible to say, you need to set up this organization and these people, and you need to have this system here, and then you'll have a godly government. Not necessarily the way that the Bible 
goes about things, but it does go about teaching us the character of God, the whole counsel of God, and knowing what he thinks about those types of institutions, and we should be mindful of them as we institute them in our world. So let's just start at the point where God speaks to Moses and gives him the Ten Commandments, because I think that should tell us how we are to approach government from a biblical standpoint. And it's in the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, you, Doug, know just as well as I, people have a tendency to get that wrong a lot when it comes to government. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, we have a slogan, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, or government is not. So we both know the state wants to be God. Exactly. And and that's part of the reason why LCI exists, because we have this authority tendency, authority complex that wants people to uh, be ruling over us for one reason or another, because we have a broken relationship with our God. So we need to understand first, no God before God. So that's the first aspect of it. But then God does something in Exodus that I think is rather indicative to show that God is not about a centralized system of human power. Now, this is something that Moses instituted, but I think it was a godly precept that he instituted because Jethro, his father-in-law, looked at Moses. Moses was overrun with all the day-to-day affairs with all the Israelites, and so they broke up the duties of Moses and put in representation from the individual people, kind of like a representative republic, where in Exodus 18, you know, it says in uh, verse 24, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over people, chiefs of thousands and hundreds of fifties and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses, but all small matter they decided amongst themselves. So there was a sense of self-governance. There was a sense of splitting up the powers and dealing with the matters of the day from a decentralized standpoint. So that's at least interesting. And I think that's one thing that we can say, hey, America really does try to do that to us. But then again, if you look at something like Deuteronomy 1 in verses uh, 12 through 18, you actually have God talking about the leaders that would be appointed, saying, how can I bear myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose from your tribes wise, understanding and experienced men, and I will point them as your heads. And so God is saying that we're going through this process of a decentralized representation. So that's a good thing. So that starts to bring a little bit of the character of God. Because God, in his position, in his authority as God, wants to be in the rightful place of our hearts as king. He is the one who is going to be the ultimate king, and he is letting us know, hey, don't go searching out for a king. Don't go looking for one because I am <laughs> I am that king. There's going to be ultimate failures if you go out and try to find that authority that is above and beyond me. And if you put your hope and trust in that king, then it will ultimately fail. 
even God goes into the place of putting on extreme limits that if Israel were to go and search for a king, in Deuteronomy 17, he starts talking about this, if you go searching for a king, you need to put absolute limits on what a king can do. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, God says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. God is going to choose this person. One from among your brothers and you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So first limitation, God's going to set them and it's going to be from amongst you. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So this idea of starting to accumulate and collect things and to steer the people, those are limits that God's putting on somebody if that's the way they want to go. And he shall not acquire many wise for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So going back to that idea of taxes and a king and a government hoarding and bringing these things to themselves, and God's saying, that's not the way I want you to do it. If you do it, you need to put limits on these people. So what we have here is God starting to develop in our minds that he is the ultimate judge, he is the ultimate king, and if we go searching for these things, it will ultimately fail. Now, I, I do want to take you, and I've been talking for a while, and I'll let you speak here, Doug, don't yeah. worry. Uh, <laughs> That's all right. But I do want to take us to 1 Samuel 8, chapter 8, and it really starts to solidify in our heads that God is not for the type of kingly system that we are accustomed to in this world or a total government system that we tend to set up for ourselves. Yeah. Well, this sort of happens to be like the the libertarian Christian's favorite passage. I think it really this is, is like yes. this is our antidote to Romans 13. And I, I know that's probably not the right word. Um, <laughs> yeah, but right. our response at least, yes. Well, respond like you have to read the scripture in balance in a certain way in order to understand, like we said earlier, the whole counsel of God. Right. And, you know, you can't understand Romans 13 without also taking into account what's being said here in 1 Samuel 8. Absolutely. And starting in chapter 8, verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. So Samuel heard from the people saying, hey, we want to be just like all of the other nations around us. We want a king. Samuel, set one up for us, please. And so he goes to God. Samuel tells God what the people want. I'm sure God is saying, oh, I told them so. <laughs> but then God says, he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be horsemen and run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. I do like that, by the way, real quick. Whenever we were talking about the tens and the fifties and the hundreds and the thousands, mm -hmm. that they were leaders, they were chiefs, they were people who were judges, they were interacting with the uh, the people of God. But here in Samuel, he's saying, no, these guys are going to 
appoint commanders, people who are going to dictate and command. It's interesting to me. Anyway, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and breakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Oh, if only it were a tenth, Matt. <laughs> if only it were a tenth. <laughs> now it uh, is, that, right? Yeah, that's the part where we look at and say, well, it'd be nice if it was a tenth. My goodness. <laughs> but you look at this and you say, God is saying these types of overlording governmental bodies tend to do one thing. They take they take from you. They take from the people. They are thieves. They steal. They come and they grab. They call it lawful. And it is God who doesn't even go in and take from you. God asks from you. He says, listen, you have a bountiful harvest. I ask that you give me a tenth of your harvest or a tenth of your income. But these kings, these governmental bodies, these dictators and tyrants are taking these things. And so you look at the history of kings, even the good ones, they turn bad. King Saul, King David, King Solomon, at one point they were good, but they had their sins and they caused problems for the people. You know, it's this cycle over and over again in the Old Testament where you see these kings were set up and he did right in the Lord, but then there was a bad king. Or he did right in yeah. the Lord initially, but did bad at the end. You know, yeah. it's this over and over, this disappointment that we will never be fulfilled if we constantly look to government, to kings, to tyrants, to authorities to fix our problems for us because they are an ultimate problem because they try to take over God's place in our lives. So I'm reading the passage right after the verses immediately following what we just read. And yeah. I'm going to read it out loud here. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us and that we may also be like all the nations. And here's what stood out to me. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Matt, mm. this is all about mm. national security. <laughs> well, this uh, is all about we well, we got to protect our nation. Yeah. It really is the people almost deifying this person saying this person is going to fix all of our problems. They're going to solve all of our issues to which God already set up systems of voluntary interaction to allow the judges to come up with the solutions to the problems within Israel. And it was in those systems where Israel flourished. It was that whole system that allowed Saul and David and Solomon to be some of the richest kings in the Middle East at that time. But then it was squandered, Israel was invaded, and the story, unfortunately, doesn't show good things. So so there's a purpose here. You know, we know as followers of Christ, we have the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul, who has written many letters to the early church around the Middle East, Mediterranean, and we are readers of those, and we start to realize, huh, there was something else going on 
with the Old Testament that God was working toward this ultimate, you know, salvation in Christ. Mm-hmm. They didn't have Jesus per se in their minds to look forward to the way we read Jesus through or the the Old Testament, I should say, through the lens right. of Christ. So right. there was sort of a purpose that God was going with here, right? And that's something that we should always take into account because the law had a purpose. And that's a lot of the pushback. You know, we as libertarians would give that whole treatise of how God views government, but then the ultimate pushback is, well, that was the Old Testament. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, God may have thought that, but there was a reason for the Old Testament to point us to Christ and uh, to push us under his law. And so we have governments now that are representative and they're much better and we should just submit to those. But really, the (laughs) Old Testament God and the New Testament God does not change. And even though God was utilizing the state of Israel to point to Christ, to bring about his inauguration and his incarnation and his position and power on earth, it's still an understanding of how God understands government and our view of government. And so we need to take that in totality, even into a representative republic that we have today. Well, would it be fair to say what you're sort of saying is that even if we don't need to mimic what was happening in the Old Testament, we can't say, oh, that was the Old Testament. We don't need to really pay attention. You're you're saying we still need to pay attention because we learn, you know, about the character of God, the heart of God, what God, you know, expects of humans in terms of social organization, things like that. Right. Oh, absolutely. And this is actually a lot of my problem with uh, red letter Christians where they said, oh, all you need to do is read Jesus. Well, Jesus wasn't in a vacuum himself. He was there with the full context of the Old Testament into the new and understanding salvation through that whole process. And so the law is still in effect, even though we are in Christ, it is still in effect and we have to at least honor it and understand God's will and direction for our lives. So how do we view that today and how do we actually then properly view our current problems with our government? Oh, oh, I got an answer. Oh, go ahead. Oh, it's just Romans 13. It just says submit, Matt. (laughs) Yeah, and that's where we ultimately come back to is that people say, well, then good, Now that we know the full worth of God and that we are no longer under the law, let's just forget about this world. Let's just be spiritual and let's just submit ourselves to the government and be cannon fodder for their wars and prescript ourselves into their militaries and allow our children to be taken and uh, so on and so on and so on. And frankly, I can't take that whole absolutist in pacifism that a lot of people tend to take. Now, I myself, I would consider myself a generous pacifist. I'm not going to start a war. I'm not going to start a fight. I adhere to the non-aggression principles, but it is not for us, and it is not for those whom we have been set as leaders over to just grant government that blind check of ultimate authority. Mm -hmm. Because who are we supposed to be in the world, Doug? 
We're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to teach people, to point people, to spread the gospel and to Christ and to say, no, 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 everything that you are doing in your life, you must submit to the gospel, not only individually, but institutionally through your government and through your processes and your systems and your tribes and your leaders. All of it must submit to Christ. And it's necessary that we do so. Okay, so let's go back to Romans 13 in light of everything that we know of God's desire for government, okay? Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities or rebelling against God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone who what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So, the purpose of the Bible and the Christian life, the whole understanding of why we have this passage in here, and thank God for it, is that the Bible is here for our full understanding, for our place in salvation. Again, we're not trying to establish all of the intricacies of government from the Bible because it is not exactly in there. We're doing this from a place of salvific understanding. So, in knowing that we are going to be in, uh, have issues, the Bible says that we are going to have tribulations. There will be times where we are oppressed, and there will be times where we are subject to terrible men and to terrible governing authorities. And frankly, God uses those times as moments that are sanctifying through our struggle. I mean, if you look at some of our own people in America, they went through those sanctifying fires as well, and there's no reason why we shouldn't go through them either. But this does not mean that Christians are to remain a doormat to the state. We're not here to just lie down and take whatever's coming to us. Doug, do you know of a gentleman that was around the earlier times of the American Revolution? His name is uh, Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. I have heard that name. So Reverend Jonathan Mayhew was a Presbyterian minister up in New England. He was born early 1700s. As were most Presbyterians in that day. As were most Presbyterians. And he <laughs> died uh, in 1766. So he actually died before the kickoff of the American Revolution. So it was kind of a pot that was slowly boiling through this whole time period. He wrote a treatise on how Americans should be viewing their government and the king from a biblical standpoint. 
I would suggest every Christian libertarian take a moment and read his discourse. It's called A Discourse Concerning Unlimited Submission and Non-Resistance to the Higher Powers. This was in 1750. There's a number of resources online that people can download, and we should probably put it in the show notes. If, yeah, we if will possible. do that. It's for sure. Yeah. But this discourse, even in the title itself, is telling you that he's dealing with what other Christians are coming to him saying, well, shouldn't we just ultimately submit to this king and his excessive taxes and his ignorance of the colonies and disregarding all of our needs here that we have? Shouldn't we just fully submit and have non-resistance to this higher power? And Jonathan Mayhew in this discourse, and it's uh, it's pretty long, argues that it is the Christian duty to resist this type of tyranny. It is necessary that if we are to be godly men and women wanting to obey the will of God, that we need to stand up, stand boldly, push back, and that we are to heap coals on the heads of our tyrants saying, you are not doing the will of God. You are opposed to him. You need to repent and reverse your ways. Now, this is a reverend that our forefathers, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, all said, gave the moral underpinnings to the American Revolution. He gave the American colonies the reasoning behind the revolt. And actually, that's what they called it in England at the time. They didn't call it the American Revolution. They called it the Presbyterian Revolt, which I find fascinating. But he actually said in this treatise, civil tyranny is usually small in its beginning, like the drop of a bucket, till at length, like a mighty torrent or the raging waves of the sea, it bears down all before it and deluges whole countries and empires. So he's actually saying here that even in the small little things, we need to start saying something, that it's not going to be giant militaries marching down your street. It's going to be in the small drips and drabs of little uh, violations of freedoms and liberties that we need to recognize and start calling out for what it is. Mm. He goes on to say, common tyrants and public oppressors are not entitled to obedience from their subjects. And this was again in his, uh, his treatise here. He goes on to take Romans 13 and praises God for Romans 13. Because rather than it being a blank check to governments to treat their people however they want, because often throughout history, evil empires have utilized that passage of the Bible to try and shame godly men and women into submitting to their authority. But he actually said it is a mirror of condemnation to those governments to say, you are not acting in the way that this part of the Bible is prescribing you to act. You are not acting in the good of the people. And you remember back in Romans 13, where it says that this is for our good, for he is God's servants for your good. That's not to say 
that whatever the government does is for your good. He's saying that all of the things that this authority does in your life must be for your good. Mm. So the government does not have the authority to railroad you and completely take from you. Back in Samuel 8, it takes a tenth of your crops. He takes your young men and women. He takes your animals. So we're hearing from God that his will in our lives is not for our governments to railroad us and to take from us, but to do those things that are for our good. And if our government is not doing that, then it is a requirement of us to preach the fullness of the gospel to those governing authorities, to other people in our country, to peaceably, rightfully, lawfully heap coals on the heads of those status and not to give a blank check to evil men who want to take full charge over us. I think that the biggest retort that I have to people who say things like, well, we just need to submit to our authorities, is that those people themselves have an authority, and ultimately their authority is God. And, you know, they are servants for the good. But the other thing that, like, even, let's just assume you're having for a moment a conversation with people who may not, they may not look at it that way. They have another responsibility. In our case, in our modern time, is that they are subject to something like the Constitution or other sorts of, I was going to say apparatuses, but that's kind of an interesting <laughs> way to put it. <laughs> I, I don't know what words I was going to use. Machines. But yes, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but like they're beholden to things, like they're not the ultimate authority. Absolutely. Even in the system that we have, they are beholden to the people in this regard. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And frankly, I think it is necessary in Romans 13 for our understanding as individuals. And I want to continue on your line about the Constitution and, and our law in land and where the citizen resides as the, as the sovereign citizen. But it is necessary, I would say, for Christians, because we can take things wrongly and out of context as well, to understand, though, that our response to evil is not to repay it with more evil. We're not here to be like the Marxist revolutionaries, even the French Revolution with the uh, storming of the Bastille. You know, we're not here to be the ones that are causing the disruption and the violence. We're here to be the ones as kind of the immovable vocal sentinels of righteousness that ensure that our government, our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our friends, our families, our representatives, our senators, our governors, our presidents, all of the people of the land are submitting to the will and the law of God. Because in our land, it is necessary for those people to not only submit to the will and law of God, but the will and the law of the people of the Constitution, and that they are subject to those items and those things in our land and those laws. And we are not subject to them as men and women in authority. So let's just remember that even if we didn't have this whole treatise in Romans 13 and understanding God's will and law for our country and how governing authorities should act towards the people, we still have a responsibility in this land to hold our government for account 
to their actions in regards to the Constitution. So we are acting lawfully. We are acting righteously. We are acting with a good amount of respect to our governing authorities. But we need to be the ones that stand up, and it is not against God's law to let them know that they are acting outside of God's law. You and I both know that the American founding, for all of its you know, complicatedness, as it were, and you just pretty much alluded to it here a few minutes ago, was founded on a view that governments are there to serve the good yeah. and that we're not beholden to tyrants and that those tyrants need to know their place. People who presume to be equivalent to the state itself, whatever governing authority that is, or to God, right. that they are not equal to God. They do not take right. that place. And I think what happens, of course, is you know there's this hubris that people get, and it's happened to even what we might call good presidents. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife once told me that one of the reasons she kind of hoped Ron Paul would get elected is because if there's any person that you would presume would not become that way, it would be him. And so it's like, in what capacity could he become tyrannical mm. if he were president? Yeah. <laughs> like, how, how corrupting is it really if someone like Ron Paul wouldn't be corrupted? <laughs> so she, because he's like that grandfatherly figure, you just want to, <laughs> you just want to hang out with, right? Um, so there's there's that corrupting power that we, of course, know, but. You know, even in America, we kind of qualify our conversation a bit by saying, oh, well, those of us in America, we have a constitution. And we do, of course. And it's not like other countries don't. A lot of other countries are not run by a king or whatever. There is rule by a some sort of constitution in a way. And so the American founding, I think, is a remarkable achievement in that Jonah Goldberg for this insight is that they wrote it down. And it became written law rather than just this constitution that was sort of living yeah. and breathing because it was just whatever the king said. And I'm not using that word loosely. That right. was that was how they thought of constitution. So anyway, it's remarkable to me that there is something to be said for how we conceive of our government that is, I think, kind of a gift to the world because it really echoes. If it doesn't outright follow, it does echo and allude to and at least attempt something at making governments do it the Romans 13 way, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the reasons why I'm thankful for the country that I live in. And even amongst its many issues and problems and violations and, uh, mm. uh, you know, all of the things that goes along with it is a pretty good form of government. It's amendable. It's changeable. And it's there to try and serve people rather than lord over them. I'm glad that we did give that uh, that little bit of warning to people that we're coming at this from a Western Americanized view of Christianity. But even our oppressed brothers and sisters in China who are dealing with uh, a communist party that sees itself as God itself and uh, to be ruling in totality, Romans 13 can be a bit like a millstone for a lot of those folks. If we, mm-hmm. if we approach it, from the standpoint that a lot of Christians do in the West to say, well, we just need to submit to those authorities, it's a little bit of a millstone to our Christian mm. brothers in, in China. But we need to give them the power, the uh, ability and authority to say, you can speak out on using your conscience to your government and say, government, you are still beholden to the will of God. And so Romans 13 
however much people might want to uh, interpret it or misinterpret it, it's not a blank check for government yeah. uh, and it's not a blank check for its citizens. It's a prescription for good governance, for the good of people, and we need to treat it as such. Well, if there's anything we need in the age of COVID, it's a prescription. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, we've talked a lot about Romans 13, and I want to also make sure our listeners know that we'll put in the show notes page Matt's YouTube video link of the speech that Matt gave. But as we wrap up, Matt, I want to ask you, what was the response that people gave? And honestly, I'm actually a little more interested in hearing, did you have non-Christians give you any sort of feedback on what you said that you know of? I've had Christians and non-Christians come up to me afterwards there at the uh, the rally and afterwards, and quite a few of them, they said they were blown away. One, they didn't know Jonathan Mayhew's name, which I'm glad to at least pass off that name because he's a guy that we should definitely look at and study into how he thought about this uh, subject and issue. But so many people, and that's why I prefaced it with American Christianity, take that whole absolutist view of Romans 13 and feel like that they are somehow in conflict with the scripture because they know somehow that it's wrong for a governor to be constantly utilizing emergency powers for almost dictatorial uses. So they feel like it's wrong, but then they read the Bible and say, how am I supposed to properly understand it? And so there was a lot of thanks. There was a lot of, whew, I'm glad to know I've got that a little bit uh, wrong and I can change my view. I've had my parents even come to me and say, wow, that was something I've never even thought about or even really approached that way. But even the non-Christians have actually said that uh, they appreciate that the Bible can be understood from multifaceted ways, because I'm sure that even atheist libertarians have heard that from <laughs> Christians at one time. Yeah, uh, yeah. But they can go back to them and say, yeah, you might want to look at the for your good part. Yeah, well, what's fascinating to me about that, of course, is that you basically, Matt, just gave non-Christians a taste of the fact that the Bible is not a tyrannical do what the government says sort of document. You know, like Absolutely. you just said, there's people who said, well, you know, I just got to submit to the government. Yeah. Well, you know, so yes, but then, you know, you and I both know that there are ways in which we can make sure that the government is run a different way. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, there's, there, Absolutely. so there's that There's that in there as well. So, dude, I, I am really appreciative that you took the time to expand on what you had to say at your speech I think, you know, listeners should listen to both, of course, and uh, mm -hmm. appreciate you coming on. I'm sure we'll hear your voice again on maybe the next episode <laughs> and the next episode and the next. Well, thanks, Doug. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to be here and talk with you about these kinds of things, to take this part of the Bible seriously and to really understand how we should approach this kind of thing. You know, I am one that is always open to comments and debates. So if anybody wants to, uh, to challenge me on this, Absolutely glad to uh, glad to be able to do it in a nice, respectable manner. <laughs> yeah, well, reach out to us. Uh, you can send us email, podcast at libertarianchristians.com. I will make sure Matt gets the email. Matt and I connect on a fairly regular basis, so it will not get dropped. He will definitely... He will definitely see what you have to say. I mean, again, if you're respectful and civil. Actually, I'll send it to him anyway, and he just may <laughs> not respond to you. So. Yeah, it'll send me into an emotional tailspin. 
All right. Well, we will hear you next time, Matt, and uh, listeners will see you next. Actually, I don't know why we say we'll see you next time. We actually uh, don't see anybody and they don't see us. No. And uh, yeah. it's just a turn of phrase. And I guess I'll just stop talking and wrap this episode up. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.